As already was mentioned, this morning we're going to be installing Dale Bechtel as a deacon in our church. The diaconate plays a very important role in the life of the church. And so before we actually formally install Dale as a deacon, we're going to consider what we can learn about the diaconate from the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 6, though Luke does not use the word deacon to describe these seven individuals, they are at least the foundation for the diaconal order, <clears throat> which is certainly laid here. So I'm taking some liberty this morning and referring to these these men as deacons, but we can at least say they are forerunners to the diaconate if they are not, in fact, formally deacons. But we do have laid out for us some, some important thoughts relating to the deacons and the work of the Lord. So this morning I have four points that I want to take from this passage. The first is the reason for establishing deacons. Secondly, the requirement to become a deacon. Thirdly, the response the church should have to deacons. And then fourth, the result of the work of the deacons. So the first is the reasons for the establishment of deacons. The historical context is very important. There were a number of factors that led to the establishment of deacons. The first factor was that the church was growing. If you notice in verse 1, it says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing, as a church grows, it naturally encounters many challenges. With more people come more needs and more issues. And those needs and those issues need to be met. They have to be fulfilled. The second factor that led to the establishment of the deacons was that in ministering to individual, some people in the church were falling between the cracks. Some people were being overlooked. In verse 1 it says, Now in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, Here's the reason. Because their widows were being neglected. There was a program established that in some way the needs of the widows of the church were being addressed on a daily basis. Since the apostles refer to the waiting on tables, it's pretty fair to assume that this daily ministration had something to do with food distribution in caring for these widows. And unfortunately, some widows were being overlooked. That is, they escaped the notice of others. They were not receiving the meals that others were receiving. Now, this complaint was a valid, legitimate complaint. The text is telling us that there are people that are falling through the cracks, which again, as a church grows, that's easy to happen. The neglect was not intentional. There was no malice involved. 
The fact that the church was growing appears to be the primary reason for the neglect. But as the church was growing, it was becoming more diverse in its makeup, which brings its own set of challenges. It appears in the text that the diversity of the church's makeup was a significant challenge and factor. For notice in verse 1 it says that now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, <coughs> a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows, referring to the Hellenist widows, were being neglected. The challenges that I'm referring to are twofold. There is the challenges that existed between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. The Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews. Hebrews were Hebrew-speaking Jews. So you can readily see that the first barrier was a language barrier. You have people that were speaking Greek, and you had people that were speaking Hebrew, and we can assume that probably the Hebrew-speaking people knew some Greek, for they were living in the culture, but there is obviously this language barrier. But it went far beyond just a simple language barrier. There was a, a socio- economical difference that existed between the Hellenists and the Hebrews as well. For the Hellenists in Hebrew society were viewed as second-class citizens. They were not as well-educated. They didn't know the mother tongue. They didn't know Hebrew. But even beyond the elitism of education, their devotedness to God was called into question. The Hebrews kind of puffed up their chest at the idea that they knew the, the mother tongue, that they knew Hebrew and, and the others did not. Now, at this point, there is in existence the translation, the Septuagint, that gets its name from the 70 that, that uh, did the translational work. But the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Just as we have our English Bibles today, they had Greek Bibles for those that did not speak Hebrew. And the Hellenists would, of course, use the Septuagint, and the Hebrews would have used the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. So there was this sense of superiority, if you will, that existed on the part of the Hebrews that tended to look down their nose at the Hellenists. All too often, the cultural, economical, social issues of the culture enter into the life of the church, sorry to say. We would hope that would not be the case, but in reality, if it often does. Ethnic groups that have difficulty getting along in society sometimes experience those same difficulties in the life of a church. We can think of our own culture, and we are all aware of the challenges that exist in blacks and whites, Hispanics, 
Indian, et cetera, et cetera, of these ethnic groups that have a tendency not to get along. Well, as they enter the church, some of that baggage carries forward. And unfortunately, God's people do not express the, the kind of, of love and, and concern and care for people of other ethnic groups in the way that they should. And it doesn't necessarily even have to be ethnicity. Uh, sometimes it can be the cultural barriers of, of young and old. And it's easy for one group to overlook the needs of the other because they simply don't associate very much. They, they don't have much interaction with each other. But it's making it clear that there's a real problem, and the problem originates between the distinctions of the Hellenists and the Hebrews. The third factor that led to the establishment of the deacons was that the care of the widows was becoming a divisive issue. Or it tells us in verse 1 that a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. This word for complaint is a very unpleasant word. Uh, it's not strong enough. When we think of people complaining, we, we tend to think of maybe a complaint box and a suggestion box and, and someone can enter a concern that they have that, that they're, not, they're not pleased. In the Septuagint, the word that is used here is the word that's used of the Israelites murmuring against Moses in the wilderness. So there is great unrest. There, there's a murmuring. There is a fuming. There is a deep-hearted concern and a growing frustration that is taking place between these Hellenists and the Hebrews over the fact that the Hellenist widows were, in fact, being neglected, overlooked. It was causing a divide, a division. Accusations were being made. Motives were being challenged. It was not a good situation. The fourth factor that led to the establishment of deacons was to facilitate the apostles in doing their work. Verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. They got everybody together. The Hellenists, the Hebrews, everyone. And they said this. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good report, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves, verse 4, to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the apostles were not going to be the answer to this question. That is, they were not going to take over this ministry. They weren't going to take charge, and everybody would have been more than happy if the apostles would have taken charge. They would have been trusted, they would have, they would have looked up to, and they said, we're not going to do that. And the reason we're not going to do that is we've got something else to do, and that is we need to be preaching the word and we need to be praying. That is our priority. 
That is what God has called us to do. That's what we're going to do. And, and we're not going to be serving tables. Now that isn't said in the elitist kind of thought that, that was beneath them or they were too great or too important. But it, it's simply talking about priorities. The apostles were saying, we can't do both. We can't do both. We can't be devoted to this ministry of feeding the, the widows at the same time that we're, we're preaching and we're, we're praying. We, we've got to make some choices here. And so they said, we're, we're not the solution. We're not the solution. And so we find, down to the day, that there is a division of labor that exists in the church between that of elders and deacons, pastors and elders and deacons. And that is that the primary role of the pastors and elders is the spiritual oversight of the life of the church, and the primary function of the diaconate is the material oversight of the life of the church, the, the physical and, as I say, material issues. Now, that is not an absolute dichotomy, but it's a difference of emphasis. So I say it's not an absolute dichotomy, for Stephen is going to be greatly used of God as the first martyr. Philip is going to play a very important role in giving spiritual guidance to the Ethiopian eunuch. So not hard and fast, but it's a matter of emphasis. So application, fast forward today, we can see the very same benefits that our church is experiencing through the ministry of deacons. That is, our deacons are doing a wonderful job in ministering to our widows. They are caring for our widows on a regular basis. They have many more duties and responsibilities than that, but they are watching over the material and physical well-being of our congregation. Those people are in the hospital, those people that have physical needs. Uh, everything from providing uh, medical devices, wheelchairs, hospital beds, our deacons provide, set up. They actually help our widows with many duties and responsibilities and caring for their homes, etc. They do a terrific job. And one of the ways that you know that they're doing a terrific job is it's not seen. If they weren't doing a terrific job, you'd hear about it. You'd be hearing about all the needs that are being present and are not met. The very fact that there's peace and unity in the life of the church is a demonstration that our deacons are doing a good job. Thirdly, the good work of the deacons frees the elders and the pastoral staff to be able to minister in other ways to the church. It allows for the pastors and the elders to be doing those things to which they are called. I am very, very thankful that I have the opportunity to give my Self, primarily to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God and to prayer because other people are doing other things in the oversight and direction of the church, and that's the way that God intended it to be. Secondly, the requirements of the early diaconate. The, the focus was on their spiritual qualities. Now, the requirements for the deacons are much more fully developed in the book of First Timothy 
And I would certainly point anyone there, if you really want to talk about what are the requirements for a deacon, uh, they are outlined in First Timothy. Again, these were forerunners to the office of deacon. But what stands out is the spiritual nature of the character of these individuals. We note the following. First, those chosen to be deacons were to be respected, verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men, and now this first characteristics of good repute. Of good repute, meaning they had a good reputation. Literally, they were to be a people of good witness. They had a fine testimony. These need to be individuals that both groups, the Hellenists and the Hebrews, would be willing to, to trust and that they would be satisfied with the decisions that they make and in the manner in which they did their work. They, they had to be people that others could have confidence in, that they weren't bigoted, <laughs> that, that they weren't contributing to the divisiveness, that they weren't going to be a problem themselves, but they were going to be a solution, all right? They're not going to contribute to the complaining and the murmuring and, and uh, all that was going on. But these were individuals that were going to behave themselves in a proper manner. Secondly, the deacons that were chosen needed to be godly. Need to be godly. In verse 3, it says these are seven men of good repute and then full of the Spirit, full of the Spirit. They had to be people who evidenced the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. Galatians 5.18, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, self-control, of which there is no law, meaning that these qualities aren't going to come from external sources, but they are going to be internal by the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. We need people that are kind and patient and considerate, people that can handle the pressures that are going to come upon them as a, a result of people's complaining and, and strife, people that will naturally be compassionate, care about the issues, care about these widows that were being neglected. They, they would want to do something about it. They would be motivated because of their relationship to God. But it's key that they're going to be motivated because of their relationship to God. Uh, it isn't just, let's find a social economic answer to this. Let's find a spiritual answer to this. Let's find people that out of a right relationship to God are going to right, act in a right way. Or this is just but one issue that these deacons are ultimately going to have to face. There are going to be many, many different issues. And so the ultimate answer is to find godly people who are going to act in a godly manner. The third characteristic of these individuals was they needed to be wise. Verse 3. Good repute, full of the Spirit, and now these words, and of wisdom. And of wisdom. They 
needed to know how to go about carrying out the work that was entrusted to them. They needed to know how to be problem solvers. How were they going to address these individuals and these people? First, in a programmatic sense, how are they going to lead and how are they going to administer in such a way that they're going to guarantee that these, these widows are not going to be neglected? We find out in Timothy that, that a list evidently is formed. There are people that are put on a list. They, they must have checked it off. Did, did they see so-and-so today? Did they get their meal? Were they watched for? Uh, some kind of structure was obviously instituted. It takes a degree of wisdom and skill. But beyond the programmatic features, far beyond just establishing protocol and ways of ministering, again, they had to be involved with people. They had to talk to these widows that were neglected. They had to address the issues that existed with the hellness that were upset. People don't stop murmuring all in a moment. <laughs> they had to work through these situations with individuals. That requires wisdom. That requires wisdom. Can't tell you how important it is to know how to respond to individuals, to have a sense of compassion, to be concerned about their well-being, to know how to make ethical and moral decisions, how to be fair, how to be just. All of these issues require wisdom, and so it was necessary that these individuals would be wise. The third response, excuse me, the third element is the response of the church to establishing deacons. What was the church's response? Well, first, the selection process had to take place. Verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. Pick out. NES says select. The word select has at its root to investigate. Thus, there was to be great care exercised in choosing who these individuals were going to be. They set out the requirements. They need to be wise. They need people of good reputation. Uh, they need to be people that were godly. Now they had to find those people. They had to isolate them. They had to determine who met those qualifications. So they had to know them. They had to talk to them. They had to interview them. They had to have some kind of awareness of who these individuals are. As we fast forward today, as we think of how our leaders are chosen in the life of the church, we have a nominating committee. These are individuals that are comprised of the senior pastor and of elders and of deacons. The elders and the deacons are elected by the congregation to serve on the nominating committee. And the nominating committee comes up with a list of 
individuals to fulfill various roles and duty in the life of the church, which includes elders and deacons and the Sunday school superintendent, the assistant Sunday school superintendent, and the other future members of the nominated committee. So care needs to be exercised. And then after the nominating committee makes its report, then people in the congregation vote, the members, and they have the ability to affirm or reject this individual as qualified uh, to serve as an elder or a deacon or Sunday school superintendent or whatever the author, office may be. The proposed solution of having deacons was well received by the entire congregation, verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. What they said pleased the whole gathering. Now, rarely do we find a situation in which everyone is pleased. The poet John Lingett made a statement that became famous through the words of Abraham Lincoln as he quoted the poet, and you will probably know it very well. You can please some of the people all the time, and you can please all the people some of the time, but you can't please all the people all the time. Well, here, all the people are pleased. The Hellenists, the Hebrews, the entire group. Which demonstrates that the people were reasonable. And these deacons that were chosen were well received and resorted in peace and unity. So the deacons were chosen. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Connor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And what's interesting about these individuals is that all seven of them have Hellenistic names, which would give us the assumption that all of these individuals would have been considered Hellenists, that is Greek-speaking uh, individuals. Remember, the complaint came from the Hellenists. They chose seven Hellenists with one exception. And it tells us very specifically that Nicholas was a proselyte of Antioch. Now, a proselyte is an individual who was not Jewish in ancestry, but identified with the Jewish people because of their faith, all right? But he would have been a Gentile. He'd been a Gentile. And for the most part, Gentiles and Hebrews had no dealings with each other whatsoever. So this is a very interesting group that is selected. Very interesting. Six of them were Hellenists, and remember, they're the social outcasts, and one of them is a Gentile. Which shows how far the church had come. 
especially in seeing that everyone is pleased with this. Everyone is, is happy about this, including the Hebrews. Which means they had to come off of their high horse a little bit and, and to recognize the value and the worth and, and the way in which God uses and blesses people. Here is a real demonstration of inclusiveness. It's quite, quite remarkable, and it's very difficult to achieve. So difficult to achieve is that many churches don't even try for it. It is so hard that church growth says, don't bother with it. It's, it's way, way too difficult. And all the church growth books say, pick a target group. Pick a people that you're going to reach. A certain ethnic group, a certain sociological group. <laughs> you're going to reach the inner city. You're going to reach the poor. You're going to reach the wealthy. You're going to pick a specific language group that you're going to focus on in your community. You're going to pick a particular age group. You're going to minister to the elder. You're going to be ministering to young people. You're going to be a middle-aged church. You're going to be a church that has families. You're going to be a church of the dispossessed. You're going to be the church of the homeless. You're going to pick a niche and fulfill that niche. And as all the churches come together, all the niches are going to be ministered to, and, and that's the ultimate goal. That is by far the easiest approach. But it's not the ideal. And it's not the essence of what Christianity is all about. The book of Galatians, it says there's neither male nor female, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither Greek or Hebrew. Those distinctions shouldn't matter in the life of the church. Shouldn't matter if you're wealthy. Shouldn't matter if you're poor. Shouldn't matter if you're black. Shouldn't matter if you're white. Shouldn't matter if you're old. Shouldn't matter if you're young. You should be welcomed. And you should be cared for. And you should be ministered to. But I tell you, it's got its challenges. Think of Fellowship Sunday. Think of what we have to eat on Fellowship Sunday. It doesn't really have a broad representation of the different food styles or interests that exist within any given community. Because, you know, why are we going to serve Indian food because we don't have Indian people? But if we had Indian people, then we ought to really think hard about what kinds of food are served at Fellowship Sunday. And we need to ask ourselves, in, in what way do we limit the participation of others that don't particularly look like us or don't have the same background or upbringing that, that we have? How are we going to integrate them into life of the church? It's extremely valuable and important and what I'm saying to you is, here it was achieved. Here it was achieved, which is pretty exciting. 
So they were installed, verses 5 and 6. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Arminius and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Verse 6. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Laying on of hands was nothing mystical or, or uh, magical, but it was a symbolic gesture of the apostles identifying with these men and also conferring authority upon them to carry out their ministry. This was the way in which the apostles identified with these individuals. They were behind them and they were instilling them with authority and responsibility. And that tradition comes down to us today and as we install Dale as a deacon, we're going to have our elders come up and they are going to be praying for him, which is a formal picture of their backing him with authority and entrusting him with responsibilities. They are delegating to him these duties, responsibilities, and thus the respect that he should reserve. Fourth, the results of having established these early deacons. The first result was that the apostles were able to continue their work. Verse 4, when they said, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, they weren't just shirking duties or responsibilities. They, they weren't just talking about uh, why they shouldn't do this, but they were sincere. For we find in verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase. There is a direct relationship between the establishment of these deacons and the spreading of the word. If they wouldn't have established the deacons, the apostles would have had to taken it over. The apostles, if they would have taken it over, the word of God would not continue to increase. They would have quit preaching, and they would have taken on this service of a meal program. A church needs to maintain its priorities. And the ultimate priority is the spread of the gospel and a continued spread of the word of God. And other things cannot detract from it, and it didn't. The second result was that the church was able to continue to grow, verse 7. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Not only did it grow, but it exploded. It multiplied greatly. And it would be interesting just to sit and reflect on that simple little statement of how the church took off. It, it just exploded. As we think about the reasons for that, how essential the, di the diaconate was to that uh, 
situation, how important it was to solve the, the problem between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. You see, for the church to have taken off, it means they had to be united. They, they had to be on the same page. It means that they continued to meet the challenge that comes with incorporating new people. It means they were sensitive to the things which can cause division. It means that they were keeping track of individuals that were among them. They, they weren't letting them fall through the cracks. They were sensitive. And thirdly, it teaches us that they were becoming ever more diverse. As you read through the book of Acts, you find out that as the church grows, it becomes more and more diverse. And in Acts, that's a, just such a huge challenge of incorporating people who aren't like us. And it started with this decision about who was going to be a deacon. It started with, we're going to empower the Hellenists. It started with, we're even going to take a proselyte. We're, we're even going to take a non-Jewish person and place them in this role. You see, for there were other non-Jews that had to be reached. It isn't until you get to Peter that they even start preaching to non-Jews. They're not even talking to Gentiles up until the ministry of Peter to Cornelius. And then you have the first Greek disciples at Antioch. And remember that this guy came from Antioch. He was one of the first that would, had been reached and developed from a Gentile community. So all of these things contributed to the growth of the church. The third result was that the Jewish community was being reached. Verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And then you have this very interesting statement. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. A great many of the priests. These were the Jewish religious leaders. The Jewish religious leaders saw in the church what they didn't see in the temple. They saw this inclusion that was foreign to them and was spoken against at every turn. But when they saw it in action, they saw it as a good thing and it was desirable. Oh, that we might see the spirit of inclusion as desirable and is praising to God. There are verses that just roll off of our tongue, but I don't think really reach our hearts and our minds sometimes. 
And we give great, great praise that there will be a people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation that stand before God. And what a wonderful situation that that is going to be, a people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. But I'm not so sure that they'd always be welcomed in a local church. People from every ethnic background, every language group, every social and economical standing, that we would really be concerned that we are reaching all peoples. That flies so much in the face of what normal evangelicalism looks like. As I said, the whole church growth thing is totally against that idea. Why? Because it's so hard to change people's hearts. That's all about our hearts and our desires. The fourth result was that Stephen, who was a deacon, blossomed even into more service. Acts 6, 8, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders in signs among the people. Stephen took off. Stephen flourished. Stephen becomes the first martyr. Stephen gives this wonderful testimony as he stands before the people. Stephen, Philip, ministering to the eunuch, in taking on responsibility in the life of the church, not only does the church grow, but individuals grow. You will grow the more that you take on responsibility and duties in the life of a church. If you teach Sunday school, you'll grow. If you teach Sunday school and you give yourself to the study of the Word of God, you will know, you will experience that so often you learn so much that you don't have the opportunity to even tell your class about all that you have learned or you don't even know how to, to frame it in your mind. Can't tell you what a blessing it is to me just to be preaching the word on a regular basis. I grow as a result of preaching and teaching the word of God. You will grow as a result of preaching and teaching the word of God. You will grow as an individual in your service for God. Being involved in the kitchen, being involved in mowing the lawn, being involved with other people, serving side by side, learning to get along, learning to appreciate each other. All of those things are matters of growth. The more we do it, the better we are. And so we need to give ourselves to the work of God. It will be a blessing to the work and a blessing to ourselves. So we rejoice this morning that uh, we have the opportunity to take in yet uh, another deacon.
And uh, at this time, without any further ado, I'm going to ask our brother uh, Dale Bechtel if he would come forward, please. <laughs> 